Please turn within your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 13. We're going to continue through uh, the study of 2 Samuel, kings and sons, looking at the life of David. 2 Samuel chapter 13. As you open your Bibles, would you stand with me? Let's welcome the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us in truth. Let's stand together. Let's pray and welcome the Lord in this place and in our hearts. Holy Spirit, we do welcome you. We acknowledge your presence with us. You live in our hearts with the temple of the Holy Spirit. You lead us and guide us into truth. Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us hearts to understand? God, would you help me to communicate accurately? Set me aside. Pray for real fruit in our lives. We do thank you. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done in our church. Through this conference, through the series, we, we pray that you would bless the small groups. Bless what's going to come out of that time together. And we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. One of my favorite things to do here in Colorado is to get up into the mountains. When you drive west on I-70, you start to see areas that have been affected by an avalanche. Where it starts small, there's a little bit of snow, and then all of the snow comes down and it wipes out everything in its path. And what we find in 2 Samuel chapter 13 is it is the avalanche effect. It is the snowball effect where one action leads to another action, which leads to another action. David was told that one of the consequences of his sin was that there was going to be adversity, violence inside of his house. That's fulfilled in chapter 13. The sin that David committed is now magnified in the life of his children. David commits adultery. He walks in lust. His son Ammon is now going to do that even on a greater scale. It's lust on steroids. He committed murder of Uriah. Now his son Absalom, another son, is going to commit murder inside of the family. I'll be honest with you, this is a tough chapter. This is a difficult chapter. If you've got small children, 10 and and younger, I would encourage you maybe just to slip out and take them to McDonald's and enjoy your breakfast, or even better, take them to children's ministry. Uh, God's word is for all, it's for everyone, Uh, but I think that you would want to read through this passage with your children as you get a little bit older, but I will leave that uh, up to you. The children's ministry is going through 2 Samuel with us, uh, uh, and they are taking a break on chapter 13, and they're going to pick up in chapter 14. But all of God's words inspired, it's been said that experience is the best teacher, but tuition is really high. So to learn something by your own personal experience is not a cost that we want to pay. And so we're able to see through scripture, to see through David's two sons, the cost of sin, the cost of lust, the cost of of hatred. So there's much for us to learn in these chapters. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Ammon, the son of David, loved her. Ammon was so distressed over his sister, Tamar, that he became sick. For she was a virgin, and it was improper for Ammon to do anything to her. So we find half-brother and half-sister. They've got the same dad, David, but they have different mothers, Ammon looks at his half-sister Tamar. She's very beautiful. She's very attractive. And he falls in love, if you would. The scripture tells us that he loved her. And he gets to the place where he's physically sick because he can't be with her. So we have to challenge this view of love, right? It's a counterfeit definition of love. He thinks he loves her. He's love-sick. He's love-stricken. 
but yet we'll come to find that it's the furthest thing from the biblical definition of love. In English, love is one of those words that is used to describe so many things. I love hamburgers. I do. I love tacos. Okay, I just love food, right? And and I use the word love to describe food. But I also love my wife. I tell my wife, Amber, I love you. I love my kids. I tell my four kids, I I love you. I express to Jesus, Jesus, I love you. And I hope that there's a difference in my love for Jesus and my love for Amber and my love for food, right? They're completely different, but yet we use the same word. A better word to describe what Ammon is feeling is lust. He lusts after Tamar. He has no interest to serve her. It's not God's definition of love. It's not agape love, the Greek word that's used to describe his love, where he's laying down his life for Ammon. Now, I want to speak to you if you're single, if you're a young person, high school, college, or you're single and you're 45, is we need to be careful in our culture and our society that relationships aren't built off of lust. I think it's really easy to just evaluate how does this person look? And so you have all of those feelings of I'm, I'm attracted to them, I've got to be with them. And ladies, young women, it may feel good to have someone feel that way towards you, but if you don't see actions of God's love in their life, if they're not pursuing you through agape love, if they're not pursuing you through patience and kindness, you know, if they're not willing to you know, talk to your parents or talk to a mentor that you have in your life, hey, I've got this policy, I don't get into a serious relationship unless you sit down with my parents, unless you sit down with this mentor. Someone that's pursuing you in an area of lust, they're not going to be interested in doing that. They're going to say, that's too old-fashioned. I'm not going to talk to your dad. I'm not going to talk, talk to your mentor. What happens to relationships that are just built on lust? Eventually, it comes to a breaking point, doesn't it? Maybe you're married and you look back on your relationship and you go, you know, we really got together out of lust. That's what motivated us even to to get married. You don't have to stay in that place. You can mature from a lustful relationship to a loving relationship. Where it's not, what do I get from this person? But how do I serve them? How do I glorify God in the way that I'm laying my life down for them? God's love shouldn't make you sick. (laughs) You shouldn't be physically sick when you're operating in God's love. Amen? But the counterfeit definition, lust, will make you sick. In verse 3, But Ammon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. Now Jonadab was a very crafty man. These guys are cousins. Ammon and Jonadab. They're friends. The Bible says that they were friends. Jonadab was a very crafty man. This is not a compliment. He's manipulative. He's deceptive. He's like a fox. And he's going to give terrible advice to Ammon. And he said to him, Why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? Ammon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. He's saying, dude, you're the king's son. Why are you pining away? You have access to filet mignon with bacon every day. You know? There's no reason for the king's son to be pining away in this, this manner. He says, well, I love Tamar, Absalom's sister, my brother's sister. So Absalom and Tamar are full-fledged biological brother and sister, mom and dad. In verse 5, so Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me food. 
and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from it and eat from her hand. Another thing to consider is this, is that evil company corrupts good habits. Jonadab is saying, why don't you lie? Why don't you be deceptive so that you can be alone with Tamar? So that you can have your way with Tamar. Friendship is something that the Bible holds very dear. God sees the power of friendship in our lives. Our, our friends influence us. And you need to be careful who you put into the inner circle of your life. That you'll receive input from. Ammon's receiving input from a very wicked source. I remember being in my freshman year of high school and making the varsity team in in our small high school in in southern Oregon. So I was with a bunch of guys that were juniors and seniors. And I was getting a lot of bad advice when it came to relationships. These guys were leading me down a path that would destroy my life. And I'm so thankful that God got a hold of my life at that time. But I put them in a place where I respected what they said. I gave them that inner circle of my heart and that input. And they were just leading me down that path of destruction. Even as adults, we let people into that place, don't we? And you want to choose very carefully. You want a biblical friend. You want a friend that's going to challenge you with God's truth. Like Peter and John, a great example of friendship. Peter denied the Lord, went back to fishing. Jesus is standing on the shore. What did John do? He says, hey Peter, it's the Lord. You need to get right with the Lord. That's the kind of friends we need. Because we're going to struggle. There's going to be times of temptation. So does this mean we never hang out with unbelievers? Jesus was the friend of sinners, but he never compromised. He never got to that place where sinners were leading him down a path of destruction. And when you're close with the Lord and you've got good godly friends in your inner circle, then you're equipped to be able to be friends of sinners and not be in a place of temptation, but in a place of bringing them up, in a place of sharing Christ with them. So Ammon goes wrong here with his friendship with Jonadab. Verse 6, Then Ammon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Ammon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I may eat from her hand, makes this request to to David. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Now go to your brother Ammon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Ammon's house, and when he was lying down, she took flour and kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. In this passage, my heart just absolutely breaks for Tamar. Here you have this young woman, and from the text, she seems to be a woman of great service. She has a heart to go and serve. She doesn't tell her dad, you know, I don't want to go make chicken noodle soup for him. You got all these servants. Why doesn't one of the servants make chicken noodle soup? She goes and here she is. She's making homemade bread. She's kneading the bread. She's baking the bread. And in this very dangerous situation, we'll see her character as we go through the passage. Verse 9. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. Then Ammon said, have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. Now it's a very dangerous situation. Then then Ammon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she made and brought them to Ammon, her brother, in the bedroom. Now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her, 
and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. So he gives this invitation. He's saying, I want to have sex with you. But she answered and said, no, my brother, do not force me for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this thing. Do not do this disgraceful thing. Her character. She says, no, absolutely not. Don't do this disgraceful thing in Israel. We're God's chosen people. This is God's land. This is a disgrace to the Lord. Please do not do this thing. And verse 13, and I, and I, where could I take my shame? She's saying, if you do this to me, where can I go with my shame? And so for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, Ammon, if you do this, everybody's going to look at you as an absolute fool. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Let's do this the right way. Let's go to the king and ask if he will allow us to be married. Unfortunately, Ammon, as he's consumed in lust, as he's bought into this counterfeit definition of love, he doesn't listen to truth or logic. And that's what lust does. Lust gets to that place where it's so focused on what I want, what I can get. Someone immediate in the situation can say, hey, Stop and think about this. This is disgraceful for God. I'm going to be in shame. You're going to be in a fool. Well, let's not do this. But lust will not listen to, to logic. Lust will not listen to truth. However, he would not heed her voice. And being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. He rapes her. And one of the things that breaks my heart is that Tamar goes through this. And that people continue to go through this today. It's something that really angers me. When I think of children getting abused, I think of women getting abused, men getting abused. It absolutely breaks my heart. And you have to understand that this is a gross abuse of someone's free will. Ammon's been given free will by God. That he would hopefully love the Lord and make wise decisions. But instead, he's walking in lust. And when rape occurs and abuse occurs, it's never God's will. I think God is weeping and his heart is breaking. He's never intending for anybody to go through that. But that's the gross abuse of somebody's free will. And I know that some of you have gone through that. My prayer for you is that God would bring healing to your heart. That God would minister to you in a way that only he can. This is what lust leads to. Right here is what we find in verse 14. A lot of times we think that, well, lust isn't a big deal. It is a big deal. On Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible. We're in the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians 4 tells us the deceitfulness of lust. Lust will lie to you. Lust will tell you that it's no big deal, but it leads to something. And verse 14 shows us the end result of lust. Then Ammon hated her exceedingly so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love which we, he had loved her. And Ammon said to her, Arise and be gone. And this is crazy. Here he is seemingly having all of this passionate love for her where I can't even eat because I'm not with you. Then he gets what he wants and the love is turned to hatred He hates her more than he ever loved her. This teaches us about lust. Lust ends up hating what it once loved. Isn't that true? Lust ends up hating what it once loved. And this is true in the sexual arena. If you operate in lust instead of God's love, 
and you think sexually, I just got to have this, and you, you go and, and take it, it's not going to lead to satisfaction. It's outside of, of God's design. But lust is not just in the sexual arena, true? We lust in all kinds of areas in our lives. And maybe now the grass is starting to green up, and you look out your front windows, and your neighbor's lawn is disgustingly green. Like how, how is it so green? Like, what are, what are they doing over there? And you look at your own lawn, and it's puke Colorado brown. It's high desert brown. I don't know how we got the name Colorado a colorful state. That was the wrong statement for Colorado. It's the rocky state. We're the brown state, right? And you're looking over there and you're going, man, I, I just want that grass. It looks like a stinking golf course. I want that grass, you know? It could be the, in the area of your job. I, I want that promotion. I got to have that, that promotion. I've worked so hard. I've gotten the education. Now, now where's that job? Where's that extra income? I, I just have to, I have to have that. And then you get it, but it was based out of lust. And all of a sudden, it brings no satisfaction in your heart and life. Ammon has really made Tamar an idol in his mind and in his, his fantasy. And it's not going to bring about that satisfaction. And the same will take place in our lives. Lust is really love gone wrong. Lust is really idolatry. Particular points in my life have gotten the wrong, wrong priorities. I'm sure you have too. Just going back to high school and playing basketball, that was my God, that was my idol. And I thought, if I accomplish these things, it's going to satisfy me. God allowed me to accomplish it, to show me the emptiness of it, and I was so dissatisfied, I was so empty, and that's ultimately what led me to the Lord. That emptiness where I cried out to God and I said, God, there, there has to be more. There's got to be more than this. Fast forward into my life and pastoring, God allowed me to be a youth pastor Marry my beautiful wife, Amber, have a family, then start lead pastoring. And growing up, I'd always kind of put on a pedestal and a wrong priority to be able to teach at a particular pastor's conference. And then when I was in my late 20s, I got invited to teach at that, that pastor's conference. And looking back, it was an idol for me. And so I taught, got done teaching, and it was one of the lowest points of my life. I was completely dissatisfied because I was looking to that accomplishment of teaching at that conference to bring satisfaction. And if you operate in that area of lust, if you pursue something in that area of lust, it's ultimately going to bring dissatisfaction because it's outside of a relationship with the Lord. Now, I know there's a lot of pastors that have the right heart that are going to teach at different conferences and different churches that are not doing it to try to find identity. They're truly doing it to bless the, those that are hearing. And it's a whole different thing, right? I'm sure some are enjoying their green grass to glorify the Lord. God made the color green. I'm going to worship God and my family's going to get to play out on, in, in the grass. Some people drive cars in glory of God. God, you've provided this car for me. And I want to use it as a tool for you. But if it's lust, then it's all wrong. That car is never going to bring satisfaction. That home's never going to bring satisfaction. That relationship is never going to bring satisfaction. If you think, if I just get married, then I'm going to be satisfied, you're wrong. If you're thinking, if, well, my spouse would just be changed, I'd be satisfied, you're wrong. You know where you're going to be satisfied? In the love of God. And as you're walking in contentment with Him, then you'll be able to enjoy those things. 
Verse 16, so she said to him, no indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. So if you just send me away after raping me, that's going to be worse. That's going to bring more shame upon me. But he would not listen to her. Then he called his servants who attended him and said, here, put this woman out away from me and bolt the door behind her. Now she had on a robe of many colors, for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel. And his servants put her out and bolted the door behind her. All of David's daughters, as virgins, would wear these coats of many colors to symbolize their virginity. So she goes into Ammon's house a virgin. Now she's been raped. She's no longer a virgin, but has to walk out in this coat of many colors. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Ammon, your brother, been with you? He knew how Ammon felt about Tamar. But now hold your peace, my sister. Here is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother's house. So what is Absalom saying to Tamar? As we'll continue with the chapter, he's saying, I'm going to take care of this. Don't you worry about it. And from this day forward, he puts his sights upon Ammon. And you feel the heartbreak of Tamar as she's putting ashes upon her head, as she's tearing this robe of many colors. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But he did nothing. He does no thing. He's angry. He's mad. But he takes no actions towards godly justice and accountability. Why? His daughter has been raped by one of his sons. Who biblically is the one that is supposed to deal with this? David. He's the father. He's the head of the house. This is the man that could lead armies into battle. This is the young man that took on Goliath. This is the man that could deal with Saul in a biblical manner. But it's difficult inside of the home, isn't it? We almost imagine what David was thinking and feeling. How could he confront Ammon? How could he hold Ammon accountable when he too had sinned in this same area? And I think that this is a trap that the enemy throws at us. It's deception that he throws at us. He says, parents, you're messing up. You're sinning. You're falling short. So you can't deal with sin in the life of your kids. David could have stood in his failures and communicated to Ammon in an effective way. Not in a judgmental way, but in an effective way and say, look Ammon, I too have messed up in this area, but my failure doesn't keep me from holding you accountable. What you've done is wrong, and here's the consequences from what you've done, and you need to face the music with society, with the authorities that God has put put in place. But it's so heartbreaking that David doesn't take any action, that he doesn't respond. In your failures as as a parent, don't believe the lie that that disqualifies you from speaking into the life of your children. Your children may be adults, 
and you see something going on in their life and you've never said anything because you've fallen in the same area, be transparent with them. Share with them your own struggles, your own failings, and the pain that it's brought, and then call them to a higher place. Children are longing for that. For Ammon to not be confronted, to not be held accountable, is the most unloving thing that David could have done for him in this particular situation. In verse 22, And Absalom spoke to his brother Ammon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Ammon because he had forced his sister Tamar. You really got to watch out for the silent ones. People that are angry and they tell you about it, you know where they're coming from. You, you can see the potential threat that they are. But the people that keep it all inside and they don't say anything good or bad, wasn't like Absalom, every time he saw Ammon was doing this. You know? He just played it cool. He's going to play cool for two years. And then he's going to kill Ammon. This is really important. The lack of godly justice gives opportunity to hate, hateful vengeance. God has set up consequences for sin. In our culture, in our society, from a government level, what is one of the reasons for government? Why has God set up the institution for government? Romans chapter 13. You can write it down and read it for yourself. Is to hold evil in check. That's the appropriate godly place for these things to be dealt with. And when a government doesn't do it, and there isn't good godly justice that's put in place, it erodes the very fabric of a society. Because people start to feel like, I can get away with it. And then when evil does take place, there's this attitude, well, they're not going to be held accountable for it, so I'm going to take things into my own hands. But then also God has set up a couple other institutions, hasn't he? He set up the church. Why the church? Because we're to hold each other accountable in godly love. And when there's sin, it needs to be confronted in a, lovely, a loving, godly way. Not just put underneath the carpet. God's also set up the family. So inside of the family, when sin occurs, that there's accountability and it's dealt with in a godly way. Because when it's not dealt with in a godly way, we get the avalanche effect. You know, David, at the very top of the mountain, adultery, he repented, there's restoration, there's continued consequences, and David could have responded differently at this point in the journey with, with his sons. It doesn't make Absalom's actions right, but it does set the stage for his hateful vengeance. I want to speak into the reality of this, and this is difficult. It would be great if we lived in a society where people didn't get raped. People didn't get sexually abused. But unfortunately, there is the sinful choices of others that cause that to be a reality. And if that takes place, or is taking place, in your family, with your children, what do you do? You can't just sweep it under the rug and pretend like it didn't happen, and think that that's best for the child. You see the kind of pain that Tamar was going through, and she did everything right in this passage. And she's made out to look like the victim, and there's no advocate. Her dad's not speaking up on, on her behalf. What kind of value does that show to Tamar? And parents, fathers, if you don't step up and call the authorities 
you're not communicating love to that child. And the person that is the perpetrator, the person that has done the abuse, is not going to change just because you had a conversation with them. I hope you know that. And sometimes this is difficult because it's a grandfather, it's a father, it's an uncle, it's a best friend, it's a mom, it's an aunt. It's usually someone that you never thought possible that would do something like this, and you're left in this tension. It feels like, if I report this, I'm going to blow up the family. I hate to be the one to bring the news to you. The family's already blown apart. The avalanche is already starting to occur, and to do nothing only makes things worse, and it doesn't communicate value to that child. It doesn't give opportunity for that child to heal. The best thing that you can do is call the authorities. The best thing that you can do is report it. Let that person be accountable for their actions. If there is godly repentance in their life, they're going to accept those consequences. They're going to turn to the Lord. There's going to be transformation, but it's got to be dealt with. Amen? It's got to be dealt with. Verse 23, And it came to pass, after two years, that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. Absalom is patient in his hatred. He waits for two full years until he operates his plan. Then Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his sheep shears go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go now lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. He says, Dad, why don't you come to the sheep shearing? This time of celebration, this time of harvest. Dad says, no, we'd be too much of a burden. Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Ammon come with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? David knows what Ammon's done, and he's looking into Absalom's eyes to see if Absalom's twitching. You know, let Ammon come. Right? You can see David's a smart man. He's wise. He understands. Is Absalom over this? Is Absalom okay? Or is he planning some some kind of, of wickedness? Absalom responds in verse 27 and urged him, so let Ammon and all of the king's sons go, go with him. So he's able to convince David and David sins Ammon. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now when Ammon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Ammon, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Ammon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. How did David kill Uriah? Through the hands of his servants, by having Joab do the dirty work. How did Absalom kill his brother Ammon? Through his servants. He had his servants do the dirty work. In verse 30, And it came to pass while they were on the way that the news came to David, saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. It's amazing how news travels, isn't it? By the time word gets to David, all of the king's sons are dead except for Absalom. So the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground, And all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Then Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, answered and said, 
Let not my Lord suppose that they have killed all of the young men. The king's sons, for only Ammon is dead. But by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Who's the messenger? The same dude, Jonadab. So he had found his way to be friends with Ammon, but now he's friends with Absalom who kills Ammon. You see how crafty he is? And he's making sure that he's the messenger to David, saying, look, it's only Ammon who's been killed. And Absalom had to determine this from the day that Tamar was raped. Now, therefore, let not my lord, the king, take the thing, this thing to heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Ammon is dead. We finish out the chapter. Then Absalom fled, and the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked, and there are many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming, and your servant said, So it is. So it was, as soon as he had finished speaking, that the king's sons indeed came, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And the king and all of his servants wept very bitterly. So David is mourning over the loss of Ammon, his son. But Absalom fled to Talmai, the son of Almahud, king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son every day. So he's mourning for the death of Ammon, but now he's also mourning because he doesn't have a relationship with Absalom. Sin that's undealt with leads to isolation inside of the family. Absalom's not confronted. Absalom's not dealt with. He knows he can't just go back into Jerusalem, the city of David, and hang out with dad. So he's off alone with the king of Gezer. And David longed to go to Absalom, for he'd been comforted concerning Ammon because he was dead. He longs to go to him, but he doesn't. Here's the last thing to consider this morning, and it's this. Sin must be confronted inside the home. Sin must be confronted inside the home. Just like David didn't do anything with Ammon, he doesn't do anything with Absalom. He doesn't make a phone call to Absalom and say, look, you know, killing your brother wasn't right. I know Ammon was wrong with what he did with Tamar, but there are structures that God's put in place for Ammon to be held accountable to. I'm sorry, I should have reported Ammon, held him accountable when this all took place. And now I'm holding you accountable. Because as we continue to read in 2 Samuel, Absalom gets worse much worse, and causes much more heartache in the life of David. He's going to commit treason and almost take the whole entire kingdom from from David. I think there's this tendency inside of our homes to think, well, time's going to fix things. There's no really reason to confront sin in the home. We're we're kind of at a place of pseudo-peace. It's not terrible, so why would I bring this up? Why would I bring this up with my spouse? Why would I bring this up with my kids? Time is going to make this get better. No. Time doesn't make sin get better. Repentance makes sin get better. This avalanche could have been stopped and actually turned around. Things going from destruction to a place of edification. I believe if David would have confronted the sin when it took place with Ammon. Maybe even a little bit earlier if David saw in Ammon, Hey, dude, you're not right. You got sickful lust in your heart. This isn't love. Quit calling it love. The way you're approaching 
your half-sister is all wrong, right? Okay? So I think that God has been having us on a journey as we've been studying 2 Samuel to bring us to a place of application. We spent four weeks talking about sexual integrity in the life of David. And if you're at this place of saying, yeah, I want to walk in sexual integrity, what's next? It's leading in the home. That's what's next. It's God then allowing us to fulfill our proper place inside of the home. Contrast David with Joshua. Joshua's at the end of his life. He's speaking to all the children of Israel. And he makes this profound mission statement of his life. He says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua had made that commitment for himself. To say, I'm going to serve the Lord. And for all of us to choose, I want to serve God. God, I serve you. I love you. You love me. I'm rededicating my life to you this morning. My life is going to be service to you. And then, if you're married, your husband, to take leadership inside of your home and say, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what's going to be the marching orders inside of this home. Joshua goes on to say, hey, if you think that's a terrible idea, and you don't want to serve the Lord, you decide. But for me and my house, this is the way it's going to be. So how does that look for us as dads, no matter the age of our children, is first examining it in our own lives and saying, is it genuine? Is it real? Am I serving the Lord? And if there's failures, own those and even teach our kids out of our failures. And then to begin to look at the environment of our home and say, how can I instruct? How can I pass on God's word in my home? How can I be a spiritual leader inside of my, my home? You know, is it your wife going, are we going to church this morning? Honey, we really need to go to church this morning. Let's get the kids out of bed and go to church this morning. Or is it us as husbands saying, oh, I can't wait to get to God's house. I know it's great for us to be together in in God's house. Is it our wives that are saying, we should pray about this? And we're like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Hmm. You know. Are we going to our wives saying, you know what, let's pray about this. Let's really take some time to be able to, to seek the Lord together. Deuteronomy 6 tells us to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. To hide God's word in our heart, then to speak that to our children everywhere we go. It's pretty simple. Sometimes we don't always have the opportunity to have like a structured devotional time. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But there's great opportunities if God's word's in your heart and you're doing life with your family to be able to look at the sunset and go, isn't God good? Look at that sunset that he made for us. Or, you know what, guys? I, I was doing my time in the Word today, and this proverb really, really stuck out to me. Or your kids start to open up about a difficulty with a friendship, and, hey, let me pray with you about that. God's Word is in our heart, and it starts to go out to our families. But then also, husband's dad, we're that line in our family that says, you know what? Sin's going to be confronted. Sin's going to be confronted here. Because, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. So I know that this is difficult. I'm pouring into your life with unconditional love. I'm pouring into your life in biblical truth. But every child, me included, when I was growing up, needed somebody to step up and say, look, you're not doing that here. When you're an adult, 
If you want to pay your own bills and you're providing for yourself and you want to do that, that's your choice. But as long as you're underneath this roof, that's not going to fly. I knew my dad loved me. He did invest all the right things into me. And as a teenager, he had a few conversations with me like, you know what, son? In this family, we go to church. So if you want to live here, guess what? You're going to church. And I don't care if you hate it. I don't care if you call me stupid. I don't care if you think this or that. That's what we do in this family. And he said it in such a way where I believed that I might have to move out if I wasn't willing to follow the direction he was going. Now, had he said that with all, without the love and the investment, it may not have gone over too well. But there's that moment in the life of our kids, isn't there? Different stages. It's not easy. It's never easy. It's never fun. It's always difficult. It's difficult in my home. It's difficult in your home. But to be able to say, God, first, I'm allowing you to confront me. God, I'm being broken before you. I'm owning my failure. I'm owning my sin. I'm wanting to walk with you. I'm going to serve you. And then, Lord, help me to then take leadership in my home. Do you know why our culture is rotting from the inside out? Because there's the destruction of the family. Satan's destroying the family. He's attacking the family. And we're allowing him to destroy the family. Where is there going to be really change in our culture, in our country? Is as God redeems families. Amen? As God wins the hearts of men and women. Some of you are single and desire to have a family someday. You're already deciding now. This is the kind of person I'm going to marry. And as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Ladies, I'm going to marry a godly man. Men, I'm going to marry a godly woman. And to see God bring back that ground inside of the family. Though that this is the classic snowball effect, it can also happen in the opposite direction. As those difficult conversations happen, as sin is confronted in humility, honesty, and truth, the cleansing is beautiful. What could happen in our homes as sin is dealt with. Instead of having a broken relationship with Absalom, there could be a restored relationship with Absalom. But we've got to seek the Lord in this. Husbands, wives, seek the Lord in this. Dads, seek the Lord in this. God, show me. Show me how to serve you and then make that mission statement, that standard inside of my marriage, in my home, to say, we'll serve the Lord. And you know what? It's never too late. It is never too late. Maybe you say your kids are already grown. The ship has sailed. No, it hasn't. Schedule time for lunch. Pick up the phone. Skype, FaceTime, and say, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry I didn't lead you. Would you forgive me? But I want to speak into your life right now as your dad, as your mom. And there's a sin in your life. It's not good. And you know what? You're the child of God. And you can't just continue. It's not going to get better. And I know I've failed. I'm not, I'm, judging, I'm not judging you, but I'm calling you on this. And see, see what God, God would do. An adult child that isn't a believer, isn't, isn't the child of God. And you see their life just going out of control. To take that place of prayer. I know you've been praying for them. Possibly pick up the phone and say, you know, I know you don't want to hear this from me. You've heard it a thousand times. But your life is spinning out of control. And let's quit pretending it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. And Christ has died for you. He's risen again. And would you consider giving your heart and life to Jesus Christ? I'm going to love you no matter what. 
I'm going to be here for you no matter what. But let's be real. Let's, let's be honest. Things aren't headed in a good direction. Would you come to know Christ as your Savior? Let's stand together. Let's pray and seek the Lord together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's honest. Thank you that you don't hold things back. Pray for those that have been abused sexually, physically, where rape has occurred. I know that this has got to be such a difficult chapter for them to read. Would you bring comfort? Would you bring healing? Would you show them your heart? Pray for those that have been the perpetrators, that they would be held accountable, that there would be godly justice. We know ultimately that none of those things are going to go without your justice. You say, vengeance is mine. It belongs to you, God. We pray for this area of lust in our lives and all the different areas that it can manifest. That we're longing for things instead of being satisfied in you. Pray for hatred and bitterness that it would be removed from our hearts and lives. That that we wouldn't be planning things like Absalom was. Father, I just pray in Jesus' name for every father that's in the house. God, would you move in us as men. We're broken before you. We failed before you, God. We acknowledge that we haven't been the kind of leaders that you desire for us to be. But we want to serve you, God. We want to be like Joshua. As for me and my house, I'll serve the Lord. Would you give us strength to instruct? Would you give us strength to confront sin? And from that, would there become fruit? Would there become healing? Would there become restoration? But it wouldn't be this out-of-control destruction, but now some edification that's taking place. We do pray, God, that there would be healing inside of families, that you would do a deep work, that you would restore relationships.